Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. Happy New Year. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of Ireland in Europe as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of Ireland joining the European communities, which began on the 1st of January 1973. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Ireland became a member of the European Communities on the 1st of January 1973, 50 years ago, following a referendum vote to join on the 10th of May 1972, where 83% voted in favour. And to discuss the history, the legacy and the future of Ireland in Europe and the EU, I'm delighted to be joined by our panel of experts. Dr Mary C. Murphy is the Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration in the Department of Government and Politics at University College Cork, and she's the co-author of A Troubled Constitutional Future, Northern Ireland After Brexit. Professor John O'Brennan is the Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration at Maynooth University, where he's also the Director of the Maynooth Centre for European and Eurasian Studies, and he's currently finishing a monograph which examines Ireland's experience of EU membership over the past 50 years. Maria Walsh is a member of the European Parliament for the Midlands Northwest Constituency for Ireland, representing Fine Gael and part of the EPP grouping in Europe. And she's the youngest MEP representing Ireland in the European Parliament. Well, you're all very welcome. And Maria, I might begin with you. And what does Europe mean to you? What does the European ideal say to you? Yeah, I mean, 50 years on um, and looking back where the country and in particular women's rights. So when we entered into the EU or the EEC at the time, the fact that the marriage bar was removed in 1973 for for thousands of women um, certainly was, in my views, the first stepping stone to the country we we live in now and, and the European Union that we live in now. But for me, as, as a young European, as a young Irish, as a young representative, um, as someone who's LGBTI+, plus, who believes in equality, um, for, for me it is all of those things. Um, and the fact that we as a country, the most west periphery of our European Union, um, are sitting at the table of decision-making when we talk about peace or prosperity, when we talk about opportunities for younger people uh, to study and work uh, and live across the 27 member states, I think is um, is a signal to... Uh, just how how developed um, the EU has been and, and, and our voice at that table for it. And Maria, do you think our attitudes in Ireland towards the EU and Europe have changed in recent years, and especially after the Brexit vote, which would be seven years this June? Because I think before then you had some people who maybe were concerned about issues of sovereignty or maybe had a certain sceptical view of Europe. But then once you saw the, the disaster of Brexit and what a mess it made and, and, and continues to make, that I think it, it in a way strengthened our, our relationship with Europe. 
I agree. I think it was a wake-up call uh, seven years ago to think that uh, a country we, with with all our historical uh, ties to it, but a, a country, our neighbour, um, uh, left the EU family, in my views, because of a very successful disinformation campaign about what the EU is and what it does, um, absolutely woke us up. Um, certainly woke me up to the fact that when you when you spin a certain narrative, or uh, and I say it to my colleagues here at an Irish uh, at an Irish level all the time, you, on a good day it's the Irish government saying this, um, and then on a bad day, well the EU is making us do that, um, and that's a narrative that uh, has forced a disconnect. Um, and ultimately, when we send MEPs like myself, it's really important that we're looking at it as as something of great opportunity. We're being critical where we need to be, but we're 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 a better country because of our relationship with the European Union. Um uh when you mentioned Brexit, I mean the fact that we had uh twenty six other voices to support and defend us when we talk about peace on the island, when we talk about uh no borders, when 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 we look at what the single market has done and, and the needs to protect that, um um I think it is it is a critical point um, for us, and it will continue to be until we have uh, the solve of Brexit somewhat ended. And it's crazy to think seven years ago uh, the narrative started, uh, and they thought it would end very quickly. Um, and uh, and through no fault of the EU, I believe, or our country, uh, a third country, uh, just doesn't believe in playing ball. And this is where. Um, our relationship with Europe is incredibly important and it continues to that way. And Maria, you mentioned very important things like rights and equality and, and European and in, in European, the European Union, the EC has made a huge impact there. But it also makes a, an impact in, in areas that you mightn't even, you know, notice so much or that you might take for granted. Things like roaming across the EU that it used to be a, a huge problem and a huge cost uh, when you would travel. Or even, you know, something like uh, having the euro uh, makes it so much easier when you're in a European country. And I, and I can understand how people might have had... Uh, a concern losing the the punt you know we had fought for so long to get our independence and our sovereignty and to to suddenly become part of a a European currency but it does make travel a lot easier it does make uh, a lot of things around Europe a lot easier Absolutely I think one of the I I always remember (laughs) remember the image uh, or the gift doing the rounds when Brexit began to happen that uh, it was wait until UK individuals start travelling the likes of uh, the Canaries and realise that a roaming is not included in, in for them anymore. Um, and it, it certainly caught my breath of, oh, wow, the things you take for granted. Um, and the fact that you get to save and you have money in your pocket and you're not, you know, you're, you're, you're a connected continent now um, uh, in, terms of, in terms of that, to your point. But we also have, uh, we also have to be grateful for uh, our funding going into our third levels, um, and now as a predominantly English-speaking, but conscious of our, our own Irish native language, we are now a very big player when it comes to connected mobility with other universities and third levels right across the EU. When you look at our airfare and the fact that now we are connected to multiple cities and regions right across the EU and the world based off our relationship with the European Union, um, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I don't think you have to go down too many roads here in the west of Ireland, certainly not 
where you see the European symbol um, where funding has come into that. Um, and sometimes, to your point earlier, we do take that for granted, um, that we think, well, the pot of money will be there. But now that we are contributors to it, now that we're at a very strong and balanced voice at that table, it's important that we continue on the benefits uh, uh, for people uh, so that we don't end up where Brexit and the United Kingdom are, where we have younger people living in Northern Ireland desperate to stay in within the European family um, and with thanks to the to the Irish government and we're quickly moving on, making sure access to Erasmus Plus, even one of our the most successful European projects that we've had, I believe, uh, in the legacy of the EU, uh, where, where young people can study, learn and live right across the EU based off the Erasmus Plus. And when you see younger generations looking at that saying, I want to be there, I want to be that. Uh, I want to be European and the experience of that, then um, all the goodness gets wrapped up. So to your point, yeah, data roaming, flights, roads, education, equality, um, a lot of work still to do. I'm not saying it's all great, but uh, we're certainly in a strong footing because of it. John, tonight we are talking about the 50th anniversary of us uh, uh, becoming a member of the European communities following that referendum in, in 1972. But of course, if if Irish political leaders had had their way, tonight's show would be about the, the 61st anniversary or the 62nd or something because uh, we would have joined in the 1960s. Yes, um, in the 1960s, we were really sort of hostage to the relationship between Britain and France. President de Gaulle was absolutely opposed to Britain joining. Let's give the French that. They may well have been right about that, about the kind of um, friction that would occur later. Um, uh, You're right. I think Irish policymakers belatedly in the 1950s, when they did the comparisons that were possible, began to see, I think, the extraordinary gap that was opening up between them and their European neighbours. And for me, it's kind of captured in that wonderful book that Professor Joe Lee wrote back in the 1980s, where he compared, in a way, the pre-European Union mentality in Ireland as what he called the possessor principle, that what you had, you held on to. It was a very conservative society in all kinds of ways. And he compares it to the performance principle, which is one that emphasizes openness, merit and connectedness. And that's why I was very interested in what you were saying and Maria was saying about that. So for for me, the European Union of today and Ireland's position when it is really defined by connectedness of business, of education and of people. And it does have this extraordinary taken for granted quality about it. Um, Historians looking at the history of international relations can I think with conviction say that there has been nothing like the European Union in all of history because we've succeeded within the space of a couple of generations of abolishing war between uh, the constituent member states. Think about the extraordinary bloody past just to concentrate on France and Germany. They fight three wars between 1870 and 1945, engulfing most of the rest of the Europe as well enormous sort of costs attached to this, especially in human life. And all of that has been completely abolished. And over the last year, I think we've had a reminder in the shape of Putin's brutal war against Ukraine of what interstate war used to look like. It's actually a reminder 
of Europe's past as much as anything else. So for me, the Europe that Ireland entered in 1973 was a more progressive one, a more open one, and it allowed all of these sort of possibilities around connecting us, not just within Europe, but around the world. Mary, whenever we do an historical topic, I always try to have an empathy for the decisions and and positions that people took in the past because they didn't have the benefit of hindsight. And, you know, whether it was debating the treaty, the Anglo-Irish Treaty or, you know, the, the terrible events of the civil war in our country to try and get into their minds. And when you look back on Ireland joining uh, the European communities without the benefit of hindsight, I suppose you can kind of understand why some people would have opposed it strongly because they would have felt that we were giving up things that men and women had fought for many, many years and sacrificed a huge amount to win. So you're absolutely right. The decision to join the European Economic Community was was beginning to um, emerge in particular during the, the 1950s. And it coincided with a period when we begin to see a new generation of Irish political leaders. And in particular, I suppose we would single out Sean Lamass who was being supported by leading officials like T.K. Whitaker, for example. And they were uh, disconnected somewhat from that 1916 generation of political leaders. And they had a, a new vision for Ireland, and a vision for Ireland which was about new domestic policy priorities, which were distinct from those early ideas around um, um, the, the treaty negotiations, for example. Um, so these these leaders were they were focused on a project of economic and social modernization. So so they were moving away from that central focus on on the constitutional question. So they were brave in many ways, um, and and they were taking risks, and they did face, face a degree of opposition, particularly during the referendum period, when we see certain sections of society. Um, somewhat aghast at the prospect of Ireland selling out its its birthright, so to speak, given that we were uh, a very young uh, state at that particular time. So, yes, I think we do need to acknowledge the way in which that generation of political leaders took advice from elsewhere, um, talked to experts, and set themselves on a new vision for the Irish state, which was about consolidating the state as it existed at that time, and ensuring that the state would be would be prosperous in the future and that it would be able to meet the needs and the best interests of its people. So it, it was something of, of a leap of faith in many ways. But let's not forget either that what the UK was doing at this time was also very important. And in many ways, Ireland had little choice but to follow the United Kingdom in terms of its ambitions to be a member state of the European Economic Community as well. Such was the extent of our trade reliance on the UK at that time that it really was unthinkable that the UK might be in the community and Ireland would be outside. So there were an awful lot of dynamics, but I think you're absolutely right. We must give credit to that generation of political leaders. And John... It was a referendum that uh, brought us into Europe. There have been many referendums on Europe since then. And, and is that a particular feature of, of Ireland in the EU that whenever there is this major change, we have to bring it to the people? And sometimes, as we saw with Maastricht and Nice, it required a, a second vote. So um, it's, it's, it's much more difficult here, it seems, to 
um, to agree to the changes and it has to go through this very rigorous process. Yeah, the first referendum obviously was the accession referendum and the government's thinking was that such a big decision needed the imprimatur of the people in order to be perceived as legitimate. But you're right, subsequent to that, Ireland really became the only member state where it was deemed um, absolutely necessary in legal terms, constitutional terms, to hold a referendum on new EU treaties. All of this dates back to one important court case in the 1980s, the so-called Crotty case, where the economist Raymond Crotty went to the High Court because he argued that the government's attempt to um, ratify the single European Act through the Oireachtas was unconstitutional. Uh, the court ultimately agreed with him by a, a relatively mar- narrow margin. But the important point is, subsequent to that, no government has ever approached a European treaty without contemplating a referendum. Why? Because I think the legal thinking was that it would trigger a challenge within the courts and that might impede the smoothness with which any uh, referendum might uh, flow. Other countries have experimented with referendums. For example, in 1992, President Mitterrand, it may have been early 1993, held a referendum on the Maastricht Treaty that was unusual for France. Um, It almost uh, backfired on him because France voted by a very narrow margin to ratify. I was living in Paris 12 years later in 2005 when they held the referendum on the Constitutional Treaty. That referendum failed spectacularly, as did that same treaty in the Netherlands about a week later. So that, I think it finished off um, the whole notion in France that referendums might be used in that way. And if that wasn't enough, the Brexit referendum, I think, really demonstrated to all of the member states the potential dangers that lay in ratifying hugely important constitutional change through uh, popular plebiscites. So Ireland is very unusual. We are the only member state that has to ratify uh, treaties in that way. But in my view, that's actually a positive thing. For, uh, for one thing, we we have a very different media landscape and ecosystem in Ireland compared to the UK. So we don't have as much of the disinformation that Maria was referring to earlier. That's a really good thing that we can have a healthy, rational debate. Although if you look back at Nice and Lisbon, you know, there were elements that we could see that were present in Britain later in 2016 in their referendum campaign. But for the most part, it's a healthier environment. And I think that's also because, you know, Europe is sort of framed in a different way collectively in Ireland to Britain. And Maria, your work on these different committees in the European Parliament, do you feel that it does make a difference to the daily life of European citizens? Is there a, because there's always that image of Europe being uh, tied up with red tape and bureaucracy. Is there a lot of red tape and bureaucracy and is it possible to cut through it? Uh, a powerful question and one where I wish, uh, if you asked me before I got elected in 2019, I was like, everything's going to change <laughs> as soon as I step in and everything will happen in quick succession. Uh, and unfortunately, it's, it's yes and no answer to this because, yes, things do change, um, but the movement of that conversation, because you need to negotiate, compromise, and bring as many voices to the table as possible, and bear in mind everything we pass, vote on, and the specific files I work on have to not just be through the prism of Ireland, Inc., 
but across all member states. Um, so give you a great example, uh, just right before uh, Christmas time, um, we passed uh, equal pay for equal work, so a pay transparency directive uh, to ultimately reduce, if not eradicate, uh, the 14.1% pay gap between uh, between genders. Um, where that file took us, and when you look at the speed of that file uh, under the Czech presidency, it took us just a little over a course of a year from committee to, to parliament to trialogues to final adoption. Um, now, that text, when you look at that time frame and, and people listening must be like, well, uh, that's, that's a long time. But in a European context, that's actually quite quick. Um, where the difficulty becomes as a young European and young politician myself is the fact that the transposition period uh, for each member state could be anything from two to three years. Uh, so when I go out and I talk about the work that we're doing at a committee level in this mandate um, and, and, and the re, re-election or the rerun in 2024, uh, it is hoped that many member states will have already started uh, transpositioning that into their own national member state uh, competencies. But it does take time, particularly for the Eastern Bloc countries, in order to move that through. So uh, not to give you a long-winded answer, but because it becomes a little bit red tape, a little bit bureaucratic, um, but actually, when you when we move through that, it is making sure all voices are heard and all um, and all uh, member states' ideas are also informed and included. And when you talk about 705 MEPs passing one section of it, the Commission, our management, as I like to call them, the management committee, and then obviously the council push through. But the, the the issue, and that's that's a positive story for me. That's that's a really good win story. Other things like um, a European mental health strategy, because my team and I work a lot on mental health with other MEPs right across the political house. Um, that is slowly moving, but three years into this mandate, starting on our fourth now, um, then I would have envisioned a lot faster. But because it's mental health is seen as a health competency of a member state, then joint up thinking becomes a little bit more difficult because it's not being held at an EU level. When you when you compare us to other member states, and I think it's only ourselves and Malta who work on the proportional voting system, but when you look at list systems where, you know, party leaders will put forward five or ten names uh, and based off the party vote, the amount of seats are won. Um, whereas, for, whereas for us here, it is every vote, uh, every voice, uh, knocking on those doors, asking people uh, to put their trust in you. And I think that is the best form of democracy anybody could ask for, and, and that's what it's hoped uh, it gets preserved uh, uh, for as long for as long as we can, because ultimately uh, democracy is a fragile thing, and equality is hard fought and very quickly lost. We see that as we're coming into a year now of, of a Russian war against Ukraine. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about what European membership has meant for the Irish economy, and we'll also be finding out the implications for Northern Ireland and how it has helped with the peace process. That's all coming up right after the break, so stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we commemorate 50 years of membership of the European communities. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mary C. Murphy, Jean Monnet, Chair in European Integration at UCC, Professor John O'Brennan, Jean Monnet, Professor of European Integration at Maynooth University and Maria Walsh, MEP for Ireland. John, let's talk about the economic implications of European membership. What has it meant for our economy and what have we gained? Well, in the first 15 years or so, it was all about revenue from the common agricultural policy. 
So there's no doubt that the farming sector benefited significantly. And that, of course, was one of the principal reasons that EU membership was attractive in the late 1960s, because it transferred financial responsibility, essentially, for agriculture from the National Exchequer to uh, Brussels. And let's remember that 25% of the workforce in the 1970s worked more or less in agriculture or agri-food. But I think the key moment of takeoff with within the integration process happens in 1987. Uh, In part, we had been stymied by the lack of political census in domestic politics in Ireland in the 1980s. The economic figures demonstrate just what a basket case we were 15 years after joining. You know, we had an unemployment rate of 20%, 50,000 people a year emigrated from the country. But in 87, two things happened. First, domestic politics settles down. After the uh, election in that year, the Talis strategy that Alan Jukes put in place also, I think, facilitated that. It made it easier to achieve a consensus. And the social partnership model, which followed on from it, I think created a peaceful industrial relations landscape. That also helped. But it was the single European Act, I think, more than anything else, that made the Irish economic transformation possible. Now, I don't think people in Ireland anticipated this at the time. In fact, there were large parts of industry that were hesitant about or even opposed to the single European market because they didn't think we could compete as effectively as French firms or German firms, depending on the sector. Now, they were entirely wrong, as it turns out. And all the academic evidence shows that Ireland has been one of the principal winners from the single market over the 30 years. And we should remember that this is also 2023, the 30th anniversary of the inception of the single market. So I think a lot of what has happened in those three decades can be traced back to that openness. Over time, then, of course, this would become a larger and larger market as the union expanded. Uh, you know, 39 million people in Poland, for example, 20-odd million in Romania. They have progressively become more important for Irish companies over time because it's possible to sell your goods into those markets tariff-free. And, of course, this was also hugely important, I think, internationally because it made Ireland that bit more attractive to US multinationals. They had been investing in Ireland since the early 1960s, since the Lamas and Whitaker change that occurred through economic development. But that really begins to take off in the 1990s. And we were really well positioned, I think, uh, to make ourselves attractive to multinational corporations from different sectors. And of course, Ireland has become, uh, in a sense, a core part of the global economy in data, in pharma and in ICT and all kinds of other sectors, in part because of the possibilities that the single market opened up in the early 1990s. Much of it was unanticipated, but for me, looking at the evidence, it's very clear that uh, a lot of the Irish transformation is down to what the single market offered us. And that's the good news story. What about when things go wrong then, when you had the the financial crash and you had the Eurozone crisis and you had then austerity and the Troika and 
that, you know, looking at it maybe shows a, a less benign uh, interpretation of, of our involvement with Europe. Absolutely. I think the principal blame for what happened in Ireland 2008 lies with domestic actors and with successive governments and the complete laissez-faire approach they took. And uh, looking back, I think for sure Irish governments were to blame for the crisis itself, but the management of the crisis by the EU was so poor that um, I think we can well look at this period and say, yes, it was actually the worst part of our membership. If we look back at the whole of the, the 50 years, you can see that public support for membership dropped in the wake of the Troika coming in and austerity measures being imposed. But I think we have to also stand back from all of this and look at the totality of 50 years. You know, we've been the beneficiary of more than 40 billion euros in European subvention. That was the other thing that happened in 87, 88, the ratcheting up of structural and regional funds by the Delore Commission. It actually seeded a lot of the infrastructure building, which made it possible to bring in huge amounts of FDI later. So I think any fair analysis, even by somebody like me who advocated against an EU treaty for the first time, would suggest certainly there were these um, very difficult periods, but it shouldn't really distract us from the conclusion that in the round, membership has been fantastically good for Ireland. In terms of opening up markets, trade, I suppose roads and everything, infrastructure, that we've become part of a, a bigger trading family and that that has benefit us. Yeah. Mary, I'm fascinated by your research on the relationship between Northern Ireland and the EU. You know, John Hume was a, a member of the European Parliament. He was a, a huge supporter of it. Uh, saw Europe as, you know, echoing things that John said as the, the greatest peace process in history. And it also then had had an impact on peace on this island then as well, because you had Irish politicians, politicians on both sides of the border meeting each other, meeting uh, politicians from other parts of, of Europe and it opens new avenues for dialogue and for, for progress. Absolutely. That, that was certainly the case and I suppose we should single out John Hume uh, who was an MEP during this period for the way in which he, he supported and in many ways influenced that kind of experience. But we do see the Northern Ireland peace process beginning in and around the end of the 1980s. And from the 1980s onwards, Irish politicians and British politicians did have opportunities to meet each other. And that was invariably on the margin of European Council summit meetings or European Council of Ministers meetings in Brussels. Because you'll remember during the 1980s, it was a a very difficult and tense period during the Troubles. It wasn't always easy for British and Irish politicians to meet for a whole range of reasons, political and security reasons, but they could meet discreetly and quietly on the margins of different meetings in Brussels. And it was in that space within those different fora that politicians were able to have frank discussions about the troubles and about ways in which the troubles might be addressed. So that particular framework, I think, served Northern Ireland well from the 1980s onwards and as we move into the 1990s. And Mary, of course, this year is also the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and we'll be doing uh, a lot of work around that and shows around that. But 
you know, in a way, when the Good Friday Agreement was negotiated and agreed, there was kind of an understanding or an expectation that Ireland and the UK would continue to be members of the European Union. And I don't think Northern Ireland and the peace process was really considered when there was that Brexit vote. And it has made things more difficult and it has made things more complicated. For sure. When the 1998 Good Friday Agreement was being negotiated, I mean, the prospect of of the UK leaving the European Union was was literally non-existent. But roll forward to 2016, of course, and the holding of the Brexit referendum, um, uh, that decision to hold a referendum, I would argue, took little account of Northern Ireland's interests, took little account of the timing insofar as it affected Northern Ireland at a period when it was still grappling with some of the aftermath and legacy of of the Troubles period. Um, And it was also clear that many very senior British politicians simply did not appreciate the extent to which a possible leave vote would impact negatively on Northern Ireland and on the island of Ireland more generally. So it was very clear, and and we've, we've seen it repeatedly since 2016, that Northern Ireland's interests have tended to be peripheral certainly in the lead-up to the referendum and and in the immediate period after the referendum. They did, of course, have to move centre stage in recent years as the difficulties which Northern Ireland was experiencing um, really became very, very pronounced. Because the fallout from the Brexit referendum is that it uh, has led to a heightening of tensions between the two communities and the two political blocs in Northern Ireland. Um, It has also led to a deterioration in the British-Irish relationship, which had actually reached a very, very positive point in the years preceding 2016, probably the highlight being the visit of Queen Elizabeth II, her first ever visit to Ireland, um, just a few years previously. So all of those dimensions, all of those pillars, which had previously held up the Northern Ireland peace process, were very, very severely challenged by this vote. Because what the vote did was it brought the contestedness of the Irish border back on the political agenda. And that was an issue that had effectively been largely settled by the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. But the prospect of the UK leaving the EU, and in particular the prospect of the UK leaving the single European market, had a very direct impact on the border. The single European market is based on open borders, free movement of people and trade. If Northern Ireland and the UK are to be outside the single European market, that means that the border becomes an issue again. And the result, as we have seen, has been enormous difficulties in negotiating particular arrangements for Northern Ireland, which would allow that border to remain open. And and those difficulties will likely continue to be problematic at least for the early part of, of 2023. Maria, has the EU been good for Irish farmers and for Irish agriculture? Absolutely. Um, it certainly has benefited since its joining and, and, uh, and it was sh- shared earlier, predominantly farming uh, country, uh, now uh, uh, selling high-end goods right across the European Union and indeed that green label going across the world. Um, and if we didn't have the capital for both our large and smaller farmers, particularly our smaller farmers in the west of Ireland, um, then we would have had uh, communities decimated um, uh, in any recession or or difficulty uh, in 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 the economy. Um, 
I also think it benefited, and, and I see it firsthand when I go out and visit farms myself, uh, the fact that there is, while some farmers must say it's, it's too strict in, in bureaucracy and legislation, but when you look at our farm safety models, uh, when, when you look at other countries that we've leaned into and we have best practices for how farm safety should be run on our farms in terms of animal welfare, uh, as well as uh, uh, tracking and overcoming TB cases, when you look at even the handling facilities that a farmer has to adhere to. I mean, a lot of that has come from um, our European counterparts. Um, and then when you look at just uh, the, ex- yeah, as I mentioned, the export of food, I mean, it's, it's multitude what communities have benefited from, uh, particularly in the West of Ireland, um, what has benefited uh, from uh, our EU friendship. Um, but where it needs to go now is we need to make sure the, the produce being uh, created, made um, uh, by farmers is adequately paid. Uh, and that's where I think the EU needs to step in more in terms of uh, fair processes, making sure um, that when we look at like, the likes of farm to fork or new uh, biodiversity environmental programs, we're we're paying farmers to create food at a fair price point and not just um, making sure uh, retail or, or or other abattoirs are making a lot more money than them. There has to be fair balance there, and I think that's where the EU uh, can certainly share uh, a stronger voice in that. And Marie, I'm very struck by your idealism, the passion with which you speak about mental health and LGBTI rights and so on. What would you say to a, a young person in Ireland today who perhaps doesn't know much about Ireland and the EU and maybe, you know, wants to find out and, you know, how, how did they become inspired by, by, by the idea? Well, I, I, we're, we're about a year and a half out from uh, a European election as well as a local election. So I, I, it'd be rude of me uh, not to take this opportunity to say get in touch with an MEP. Um, or perhaps run uh, as a member of the European Parliament. We desperately need to have younger uh, voices in our political systems because when you look back on on, on our history, uh, we need that idealism. We need that uh, that passion to be Irish and European um, um, in order to look at really difficult issues like mental health, like equality, like our migration. Uh, process, which is uh, uh, often an unspoken taboo and, and quite a broken system right across the EU. Um, and we need to hear those voices at, at, at the decision-making tables. Um, great organizations like the European Movement Ireland is there um, in terms of offering traineeships and apprenticeships, both in the Commission, the Council, and ourselves in the Parliament. And I think that's a fantastic way uh, to, to, to just bite a little piece of the the, the apple when it comes to European Parliament and, and the politics at, uh, at play here. Um, and then it, for, for a younger audience or teachers that are listening or parents, you know, there's European ambassador schools programs for our TY uh, students. There's the Blue School program, Blue Flag program for our primary schools. Uh, and that is a fundamental uh, brilliance of when we look at things when disinformation and critical thought is not taught and not shared, um, you see Brexit. Um, so we need to make sure younger people are looking at our EU and our European peace project uh, with critical thought, but with an ambition to make it better. Well, thank you so much, Maria, for joining us tonight. Maria Walsh, MEP. And we are going to continue the discussion of Ireland's membership of the European communities right after this break.
Well, welcome back to Talking History. As we mark the 50th anniversary of Ireland becoming a member of the European communities, now, of course, the EU. Uh, before the break there, we were talking to Maria Walsh, MEP. We are continuing with our panellists, Dr Mary C. Murphy, Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration at UCC, and Professor John O'Brennan, uh, Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration at Maynooth University. Uh, Mary, maybe let's talk about the future of the EU and Ireland's involvement first before we look at the legacy. And I suppose there are maybe difficulties or challenges ahead because, you know, we've mentioned the war in Ukraine. You know, there's issues or questions then about Ireland being part of a common security policy. Uh, There's questions about Irish neutrality. Um, I I suppose there are issues now that are being raised about what is the future of Ireland in the EU? Yes, for sure. Um, There are a number of issues on the horizon which Ireland will have to grapple with in the years ahead as, as part of its EU membership. I suppose there's two key issues, really. There, there is the fallout from Brexit, which continues. And in that context specifically, the loss of the United Kingdom as an ally for Ireland around the European table is something that the Irish government will continue to have to confront in the years ahead. Now, they have made some uh, important, uh, important decisions in terms of how that will be confronted. And in particular, they have been focusing on developing relationships and networks and alliances with other EU member states. And they are member states that perhaps we had not been as close as we were to the UK with. And they are member states who may not necessarily share entirely the same interests as us, but member states like France and Germany, who are key member states within the European Union infrastructure. And Ireland has been making uh, very important um, decisions about how those alliances between Ireland and France and between Ireland and Germany will be structured in the years ahead. And, you know, you and, and listeners may well have noticed the fact that we have seen more contact between Ireland and France and Germany over the course of the last year. We've had very high profile visits of Irish politicians to Germany and France and, and vice versa. And there are efforts to really support these relationships in an effort to tell Ireland's story and to share Ireland's interests on a whole variety of different policy fronts with a view to Ireland continuing to have influence and support around the table of of the European Council and the Council of Ministers. So so that's, I suppose, uh, an an important priority for the Irish government as we confront the, the future of the European Union. But there are other issues as well, as as you've mentioned. The war in Ukraine, which started in February 2022, has been a a really significant development for the European Union. And it happened at a time when the UK had left the European Union. The UK had been the most important military actor within the European Union. Uh, There is no other member state can necessarily compare with the military might and the defence capacity of the United Kingdom. So that has exposed ways in which the European Union is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to conflict on its borders, and it's vulnerable in terms of not necessarily having the policy capacity and the practical capacity to confront that kind of conflict. So it is begging questions about the way in which the European Union will develop its capacity on that front. And this will mean very challenging questions for Ireland. 
about what kind of contribution Ireland might make to an enhanced form of foreign security and defence policy in the future and what that might mean for Ireland's policy of military neutrality. So there are difficult questions on the horizon for Ireland and I think these are questions that will become increasingly evident within public and political narratives over the course of 2023 and beyond. John, what would you see as the legacy of Ireland's 50 years of membership? I suppose we've talked about the economic benefits, we've talked about benefits in terms of of equality and rights, Northern Ireland, but is it possible to sum it up? Yes, I think it is. Um, The most important legacy by far, I think, is the fact that Ireland has made a great success of membership. And indeed, there are many smaller member states across the EU who consciously try to emulate the Irish experience within Europe, do the kind of things that we have done. So uh, you can see this at one level in the figures that in 1973, we had a GDP per capita of 53% of the then community average. We were the poorest of the rich nine states of the community of that time. Today, we are amongst the richest of the rich in the EU 27, GDP per capita second only to Luxembourg. Um, I think we have demonstrated also that small states in a world that is still kind of hostile to small states can have this extraordinary shelter within the EU where they can pursue their national interests vigorously at times, but can also cooperate very purposefully with their partner states and with other jurisdictions within the overall union context. So in a way, the EU has changed the entire landscape for small states. If you look at the 27 now, there are 22 out of those 27 states that are either defined as small or medium-sized states, small like Ireland, medium like the Netherlands or Austria, for example. Um, And I think over time, what you see is that these patterns of cooperation, they become kind of embedded in the landscape, in the institutional landscape, and uh, they offer ways of solving common problems, problems like climate change, which is absolutely at the top of the European Union's agenda during the von der Leyen uh, Commission, and I'm sure will remain there in the years to come. We simply could not tackle these problems as a small state on our own. So what the EU does, I think, more than anything, it doesn't solve all your problems. It isn't a panacea for bad domestic policy making, but it adds value to the effort of transformation that is taking place in all these different sectoral areas, uh, you know, within the international sphere. That's, I think, where the most important legacy lies. It's taught us a new way of thinking about the world, a new way of doing politics. And probably if we had done this show 17 years ago when we started doing Talking History, we probably would have had, you know, you know, maybe two panellists against and two for, and there probably would have been more of a debate about sovereignty and our role. And I think there has been maybe more of a consensus about Ireland's membership of Europe has developed in recent years and I think we're maybe more comfortable and maybe more at home in Europe. I think that's true, Patrick, for two reasons. Firstly, Brexit gave us so many demonstration effects 
it demonstrated to other member states what the opportunity cost of exit really was. And many of those costs simply weren't anticipated, even by pro-Europeans in Brussels and in London and elsewhere. It demonstrated, I think, just the way in which our economies and our legal systems have become intertwined over the last 30 years in particular because of the single market. So the British effort to sort of extract itself revealed just how closely connected and um uh, that i think is 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 probably that sort of re- landscape of interconnectedness is going to deepen further in the years to come and there was kind of a sense that europe stood with us during the, the the most difficult times during Brexit, and especially when it came to Northern Ireland, the protocol, you know, there was a sense that Ireland wasn't on its own. That uh, that Irish concerns and fears and, and and ambitions, dreams for the future, that they were being protected very much by by our partners in Europe. They were partly because the Department of Foreign Affairs did a magnificent job in going out to every national capital and explaining what was at stake that. The border issue was absolutely existential for Ireland. But it did other things too. The kind of repositioning in Europe that Mary referred to really came about because within foreign affairs, they realised a lot of our relationships had been the subject of complacency, that we'd allowed them to atrophy. So it led to, I think, a whole series of kind of changes in our geopolitical arrangements within the EU. But if I may say so, I think the most important change over this period of time has been psychological. Gareth Fitzgerald back in 1979 when the um, Irish currency broke with sterling for the first time because we joined the European monetary system, the forerunner of the euro, he said the most important part of it was psychological, that we were in a way moving ourselves away from that British sphere of influence 60 years or so after independence. And I think that has continued, it's deepened. We can see it now in, I think, just the new sort of normative attachment to integration. Uh, what I mean by this is that in for the first 20 or 30 years, we had a really transactional approach to the EU. If you're out there in Brussels, could you get me a grant? That has changed very decisively, in part because of Brexit and for the reasons that you have suggested. So there's a kind of deepening psychologically of the Irish commitment. I don't want to overstate this, but I think it is important. It's certainly there in our elites and Brexit, I think, only reinforced what was an important trend. Okay, well, I think that's an excellent point on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my panel of experts, Dr. Mary C. Murphy of UCC, Professor John O'Brennan of Maynooth University, and we also were joined by Maria Walsh, MEP for the Midlands Northwest constituency. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.